Let's pray. Lord, this morning, before we lift up some specifics regarding how we spend the next few minutes, I want to pray for another brother and his family and another church in our community. I want to pray for Jimmy Vaughn and his family. And um, Lord, first I want to pray that Jimmy is fueled by worship, just knowing the uh, firsthand the, the uh, potential pitfalls for a pastor uh, left to our own time and studies. Um, Loneliness, um, potential to hear too closely criticism or listen too closely to praise. And I just pray for Jimmy that you would guard him from all of the above and that he would be fueled by worship. I pray that his time with you would be relentlessly fueled by worship and that his time with you would fuel worship and that that perpetual cycle would be what fuels, first of all, his ministry to his family, and secondly, his ministry to Authentic Life Fellowship. Lord, I pray that, uh, I pray that you would use Authentic Life to raise up disciples, make disciples, who are begetting sorts of disciples, who are not just sitting and uh, receiving, but are being equipped for a work where they are giving and distributing and engaging, that they are being salty and bright and aromatic because of what they are equipped to do each week. Lord, I pray that whatever way possible that we can come alongside authentic life, whether it's just this morning lifting them up and sharing a great Lord and Holy Spirit, if there's some specific thing that we need to come alongside them in, we pray that we are attentive to that. Lord, more than anything, we recognize that it may not be on anybody's schedule, it may not be on a program, it may not be on an agenda, but that we share the same gospel and the same, the same work in this community. And Lord, we count that a privilege, and that's why we lift up our sister church and this pastor who's shepherding this people. Lord, in these next few minutes, the way we spend the next few minutes together, I pray that of 10 years worth of sermons, that this one would be something that we grab as a people, not because it's well-delivered. Um, that may or may not happen, but because of what is being enjoyed in these next few minutes. I count the content of this sermon to be among um, one of the greatest truths that I've ever known, much less had the, the privilege of conveying, and I'm thankful in advance for these next few minutes, thankful for the privilege and the blessing and the opportunity to enjoy a truth so great. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're in a series of sermons called the Rest Series. Last week, I shared sort of a disclaimer how important last week's message was relative this week's, that they are inextricably linked. Now, the problem is they're not linked by time. We didn't have one sitting where we engaged both sermons. And in fact, a lot of people that weren't or that were here last week are traveling or doing some sort of holiday activities this week. And I told them then how important it would be that they listen to today's message. So I want to say the same thing to you for those of you who weren't here last week. 
how important it is for you to hear last week coupled with this week. If you fail to get one or the other, I'm convinced your car is going to have a pull to the right or the left, depending on which one you heard. You're going to walk with a limp. You're going to be off balance. Last week's and this week's messages are so tied together that I beg you, if you did not hear last week's, don't live only on this week's. You need last week's. And for those of you who were here last week, you have the, uh, the privilege of having the full, well, not quite the full, next week will be the full package, but you have what I would say would be the essentials between last week and this week. Let me give you a little bit of context in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a sermon written by a Hebrews pastor, the, the Hebrew pastor. He was likely a, a Jewish, former Jewish um, believer who's come to faith in Christ. This church looks like it must have been largely Jewish folk who recognized Christ as Savior and Lord. We believe that they were in Rome. We don't have a clear picture of exactly where they were, but some of the details that we piece together make us think that they were in Rome. We don't know who the Hebrews preacher was. Some people think that it was Apollos. Some people think that it may have been a woman, and that's why it's not identified in there because that would have discredited it in that day. So we don't know who the Hebrews preacher was, but we know that he was their pastor, and he's not with them physically. He's writing them this letter that's really, in many ways, a big, fat sermon, encouraging them not to bail on Christ. Wherever their context, whether it's Rome or whether it's somewhere else in the Roman Empire or whether some even believe it's in Jerusalem, I think that's the least likely. Whatever their context, they are facing severe persecution, so much so that they are considering bailing on Christ and going back to Judaism. Oh, sort of a respectable fallback. And the Hebrews preacher throughout this book is saying, don't do it. Christ is too good. The gospel is too rich. That's trading your birthright for a bowl of soup in so many ways is what he's saying to them. So we've spent a year and a half or so by this point in the book of Hebrews. This morning we're continuing in Hebrews 4, but Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 tied together. Hebrews 3 in large part is a warning to the church, don't bail on Jesus shy of the promised land. And Hebrews 4 shifts gears with sort of the same message, but less warning and more promise. Don't bail on Jesus because there's a sweet promise of Sabbath rest in store. Let me climb into the chapter. I'm going to just unpack a couple of different things in the chapter, and then we're going to go on a little journey together this morning through the Bible. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, our preaching of good news, came to us just as it came to them, their ancient Israelite fathers and mothers. He's taking them back to about 1,500 years earlier when they were in the wilderness and they disbelieved God. They did not trust God, and they pined for Egypt. 
Good news came to them, came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So far right there, if we hadn't read any further, we might think he's still talking about the promised land sort of imagery. Using the metaphor in some ways of entering the promised land as the picture of rest. But here in the next verse, he starts to shift gears. Although his works are the finished, the second part of verse 3. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Right here, he shifts images from only talking about or using the promised land as sort of metaphor of rest to now using the imagery of Sabbath, where God created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh and as he commanded his people to do the same. The imagery changes now to include Sabbath imagery. In verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, he's referring to a psalm, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is where we went last week. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore, Hebrew church, let us therefore, cross point fellowship, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us therefore strive to make it to Saturday. Appreciate the metaphor for how, how simple and beautiful it is. Let us strive together for some of you are in Friday noon and you don't know it. You might be aged. Time-wise, says you're at Friday at noon. I hate to break that to you, but I mean, we know that's coming. But you may be young and you don't know what this, week's, this week holds. And it may be Friday at noon for you. Who knows what's going to happen this coming week. But for most of us, if you're, in your, you're, if you're in the stage of life that Christy and I and our family are in, it sort of feels like maybe Wednesday, hump day, like you're slogging through, just trying to get through the middle of the week. That's the imagery that's encouraged right here. This church is in hump day. They're, they're experiencing some significant trials, likely at the hands of Rome, but especially, ironically, at the hands of Jews. The Jews gave the Christians far more persecution than Rome. So these guys are in hump day of their ministry as a church, and he's encouraging them, press on till Saturday for a Sabbath rest remains. That was last week's message. Now... In last week's message, the title, Rest Later, Continuing His Work. That's the plain meaning of the text. This week's message is a message that we cannot not consider. If we're going to consider a message on work and continuing and pressing on till Saturday, this is a message that we can't 
pass up on are assume. Because if you assume it, you can make a mess of the good news. You can make a mess of your faith. You can make a mess of the gospel. You can make a mess of worship. This Sunday's message is so essential that we're going to connect it to last week's message. The title of this week's message, last week was Rest Later, Continuing His Work. The title of this week's message is Rest Now, The Work is Finished. Now, if you're confused, you may be able to sort some of that out by the end of the morning, but let me promise you this. Next week is where I'm going to show you how it all fits together. We're looking at two sides of one coin. Last week, we looked at one side. This week, we're going to look at the other side. Next week, we're going to flip that thing, and we're going to enjoy it together, both sides, and figure out how it works. Okay? So this week, we're looking at the other side of the coin. Rest now, for the work is finished The verses that really lean in this direction in Hebrews 4 that sort of indicate that the Hebrews preacher is talking about something more than just a metaphor, then verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What is implied here, and it takes a lot of study in reading the rest of Hebrews and some other passages where we're going to go this morning, is that we can actually experience this rest that he's promising is coming if you continue now. Like as in today. It's not just a not yet thing. It's an already thing. We're going to come back to that in the rest of the morning. But we're going to start at the very beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to back up at this thing. We're going to back up from this thing and engage it from a different angle. I'm going to give you some sort of refreshers of some things that we've considered the last few weeks, none of which we want to take for granted, none of which we want to assume, because if we're going to be wise stewards with this charge, we need to understand it. Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to give you a few snapshots of things we've considered the last few weeks, and then we're going to consider something altogether different this morning, and we're going to fit them together. Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. That's the Hebrew word there is the word sabbat. It means cease or pause. That's where Sabbath comes from. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. First of all, when we consider Sabbath, we have to consider that God did it. He's the first one that did it. He established it, but he also did it. We also have to consider that he didn't need it. It wasn't like he was tuckered on Friday. Because we're talking about God here. There's no fatigue issue. There's no decay. There's no consequences of sin and fall. He's not tuckered. He could have kept on creating. But yet he establishes this day because this day, in this case, what he's talking about here, is hugely important. Okay? Turn to Exodus 20. 
Exodus 20. God established the day. He did it himself. He didn't need it. And he did it after some really good and even some very good creative work. He called it good, and he called it very good. Now, Exodus 20 makes the top 10, the Sabbath issue. Look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It makes the top 10, and it gets more airtime than any of the other commandments. It gets more airtime than murder, adultery. I mean, you have to think about it more airtime even than idolatry. We've got to consider right off the bat, this Sabbath issue must be very important. And this first treatment here of it, in the law anyway, in Exodus 20, says to focus on, especially on this day, God's creative work. God's creative work. Now, turn to Deuteronomy 5. This is going to sound familiar, but there's some additional information in here that's essential. Deuteronomy 5, beginning in verse 12. I think it's funny, too. I'm making you work here on a day we're talking about rest but we're working in what we're going to rest in. Okay, so we've got a number of passages to go to this morning, but they're, they're for good reason. Beginning in verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. This is redundant in some ways, but there's some additional content here that I want us to consider. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox or your donkey or any other of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. I already heard this week there's a kid in our body that already uses this as an excuse not to do some work around the house. <laughs> <laughs> like a four-year-old or something. It's pretty funny. Didn't he say Sabbath right? Sabbath, Sabbath or something like that? It's funny. Now, listen to this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Now, he's talking, not talking about creative work here. He's talking about delivering work. This is at the end of their wilderness experience. 38 years later, they're at Nebo, about to go into the promised land, and Moses is bringing the law back to him and saying, let me re-communicate, recast this law, but let me add this additional insight on the Sabbath. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Okay, the first content there in Exodus 20 focused on creative work. This casting of it in Deuteronomy 5 focuses on delivering work. This commandment is so important. It gets so much airtime. And here it is. We see on these events, we are to, or the, the people of God were to focus on God's creative work and God's delivering work. Now, listen to this. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. If you really are adamant, you can't turn here. Certain people like to do that. Exodus 35 
Verse 2. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Listen, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Death to the one who transgresses the commandment regarding Sabbath rest. Now, I have to be really honest with you. Of all the commandments, it seems sort of the least urgent to me. Like death for idolatry, that seems like that would make sense. Death for adultery, man, let's find some stones, right? I'm sounding like somebody else, sound like lots of other people. But if you're really honest, you think about the commandments and you really put them in perspective, not working on a day of the week seems like the least grave to transgress. Yet it is the one that gets more airtime than any other commandments. And it is the one that he says, if you transgress this, you shall die. Now, if that's all you have, if that's all we had was our Old Testament, then we might be like how the... The early Israelites may have thought, I just can't imagine if I wasn't Jacob, the early Israelite, then I'm not sitting around thinking, seems excessive. In fact, when this commandment was obeyed and someone actually did kindle their fire on the Sabbath and actually went out and gathered up kindling, they were stoned. When that happened, there was actually rebellion by Korah and his followers in the book of Numbers. If you've read that story, you realize that's likely connected because it's likely the whole nation of Israel is going, seriously, that is excessive. What I'm going to show you this morning is that is the most appropriate outcome that could possibly happen given what Sabbath represents. The whole point of the sermon is going to come back to that one key question, one key issue. Doesn't it seem excessive? What I want to show you this morning, by the end of the morning, is that it is perfect punishment considering what it actually means. What I wanted to establish right off the bat, going to grab some of these other passages that we've considered in the past few weeks, is that the Sabbath is, not was, very important. Is very important. The Hebrews preacher's reference here had significant meaning and importance. It's not just a metaphor for y'all don't quit on Wednesday. It's at least that, and that's a good metaphor. But given what Sabbath means and what it is, it is such a rich connection to the encouragement the Hebrews church needs. Now, we're going to move into our New Testaments and grab some new satellites. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to grab three satellites, one from Acts, one from Romans, and one from Colossians that are going to help us sort of at least ask a more precise and surgical question about the Sabbath. What does it mean for us is what we're going to be getting at this morning. Acts chapter 15, let me give you a little bit of context. The gospel by this point in the, in the story, in the Acts story, has gone to the Gentiles. 
And there have been some problems where, as the gospel's gone to the Gentiles, it's been hard to sort of sort out, well, what are we supposed to be asking of the Gentiles? It's a great question because the Jews are supposed to be asking the same question as well. What old Jewish stuff that we used to do, do we, do we, know, or do we need to continue doing? Now that Christ has come and finished his work, what are we to continue doing? The Acts um, 15 council is where that question is deliberated and answered. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, the elders in Jerusalem, they come together, the apostles, and they chew on this question. And listen to where they land in verse 22 of Acts 15. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barabbas, and Silas, leading men among his brothers, with the following letter. This is going to be the instructions for the Gentile believers. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Here's the content of the message. Since we've heard that that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Now, what this is referring to is in the very first verse of this chapter. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul called them Judaizers in the book of Galatians. And Paul has some graphic things to say about these guys if you read Galatians. This is seriously bad news to preach grace plus something. So that's what they're dealing with here. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from, from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your, mind, your minds, although we gave them no instructions, that's regarding the, uh, grace plus circumcision, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Let's look what's in here. This is what's being asked of the Gentiles. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, no drinking blood. That's easy, easy to follow through on, I would hope. And from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, those things make a lot of sense. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell, period. Now, what's missing from that is anything having to do with some special day of the week. What's absent from these essentials for the Gentile church and what will eventually become essentials for the Jewish, like the Hebrews church, the Messianic Jewish church, will be take all that stuff away and boil it down to this. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't drink blood and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. There's nothing in there about the Sabbath. There's nothing in there about practicing this day that seems to get so much airtime. 1,500 years worth of practice up to this point. And here are the essentials of being a believer, and it doesn't even make the list. Interesting. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're going to try and make sense of the Sabbath thing through the lens now of the New Testament. We've done that in these last few weeks. We did it for the first few minutes through the lens of the Old Testament. 
but we're really going to bring it into focus now through the lens of the new. Romans chapter 14. This is a great, great chapter on different beliefs within the same faith. This chapter allows for some different things that could happen within the people of God where one person considers one thing is more important than another, and that's okay. Where one person abstains from a certain kind of food or drink and another one doesn't, and that's okay. There's room for that. Listen to what he says here. Paul says to the Roman church in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What is being communicated there is that there is room within the faith for some people to say, I'm not going to cut my grass on the Lord's day. As an act of faith. I'm not going to get out there. It can be knee high, but I'm not going to cut my grass on the Lord's day. I'm not going to go hunting on the Lord's day. A bunch of my buddies growing up in central Louisiana, a bunch of my Cajun buddies, they couldn't hunt on Sunday because their family, I hope it's in faith, were saying, no, we're not going to do that on Sunday. There's room within the faith. And then there's room within the faith for somebody to say, man, Sunday is the only day I've got to cut my grass and I'm going to cut it in faith. I'm going to sing to Jesus while I'm out there riding my lawnmower around where nobody can hear me. You think nobody can hear you. People can totally hear you over the, over the lawnmower. Like you're in your car, you're not invisible. Some people say, man, that's the only day I can do that. And in faith, I'm going to do that. There's room in this passage within the faith to enjoy a special day of the week, or to enjoy every day is special. There's no mention of the Sabbath. Interesting. Colossians chapter 2. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one judge you in regards to whether you're going to practice the Sabbath or not. That's the message there. Colossian church, let no one judge you if you cut your grass on Sunday or don't. Look what he says next. These things, these Sabbath festivals, these new moon festivals, these other festivals, what you eat and drink, these are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The encouragement here is, that these Jewish, Jewish regulations, these rituals, the Jewish calendar are not binding on the Christian. 
They are not binding on the Christian. These observances pointed, their their, their shadow, they pointed to a substance that is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the substance that he's referring to here. Christ is the fulfillment of those festivals, of whatever we eat and drink, which we're going to do in a little bit, of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of those things. Now, let's get to the real heart of the New Testament teaching. I want you to look at three passages in the Gospels. And let me tell you something right now. If you've done the work up to this point, and you're like, man, I'm kind of tuckered. I'm not sure that I've got enough left for these next few verses. I'm urging you. In fact, if you've gotten to this point, just kind of forget that you did all that work and just kind of try and renew and set your face like flint because these next three verses really, really get at the sweet, sweet marrow of the sermon this morning. The first one is in Mark chapter 2. Turn there, please. Mark chapter 2. We're going to look at three things, three different events in Christ's ministry that are connected to the Sabbath. And as you're turning there, let me tell you this. It's interesting. We're getting really at the sort of the, the goods for the Sabbath teaching coming from Christ himself. And let me just kind of prepare you for something that's interesting. Every single one of the commandments are imported into the New Testament in different places, except for the Sabbath teaching. Many of them are imported in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you have heard it said this, but I say this. You have heard it said, don't kill anybody. But I say this, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. If you look on another, but, but I say this, if you look on another woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. He does this many times in the Sermon on the Mount, but through the rest of the New Testament, every single one of the commandments are imported into the New Testament, except for the Sabbath clearly. It's the only thing that's not recast and in many ways raised And you'll see why here in the next few minutes. Mark chapter 2. Almost every single one of the conflicts that Jesus had with the Jews, with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Jews, had to do with the Sabbath. It's so funny to me that so much of my life, my Christian life, has been so void of any sort of Sabbath teaching when it gets so much airtime in our Old Testaments when it took up so much dialogue of the Gospels where Jesus is going back and forth with the Jews about Sabbath issues, and yet, to me, it was nothing more than a day I couldn't cut my grass. And I don't even think my family adhered to that. It's a really, really sweet teaching in this. Listen to this. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? When he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even 
of the Sabbath. And these first of three examples, all that I'm going to share with you on all these Sabbath conflicts that he had with the Jews, what's taking place here is he and his disciples are gleaning, and the Pharisees are calling that work. And they're gleaning, and he ends this dialogue with the statement, Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, let's look at the next one. Both are in John. John 5 is the first one. John 5 is the first one. First one, he's gleaning with his disciples. He ends it with the statement, Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, let me tell you why they were laying around these pools. What they believed that these pools were were little healing pools, And someone, their family member, might take an ailing invalid, you know, for whatever reason, blind, lame, whatever, would take them to the pool of Bethesda, and they would lay next to the pool every day, all day long, on a crusty old mat, waiting for the water to be stirred up. They believed that an angel would stir the water up, and whoever was the first person to flop themselves over in the water, if they were able, would be healed. That's what they believed. So you need to know that for context for what's about to unfold. In these, these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. You're going to find out later that he couldn't walk. He's laying on a crusty old mat. Likely a family member brought him there, and he just plopped him down. Hope you get healed today, buddy. Plop yourself over. Be attentive. The water stir. It's interesting this guy's laying 38 years for the exact period of time the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. I write in my margin whenever these dialogues take place, these Sabbath arguments, where it says in there, kind of just matter-of-factly, now this day was the Sabbath or something like that, I put in the margins, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. You can write that in your Bible if you want to. You don't have to, but you can. Uh Uh-oh, it's the Sabbath So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, well, the man who healed me, that man, the Lord of the Sabbath, he didn't say that, but I'm thinking that, said, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, though, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Healing people on the Sabbath. Gleaning, eating, heaven forbid, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, listen to what he says, Sabbath context. My father is working, and now I am working. I preached through John. It took me eight or nine years to do it. And it's not until this week that I'm sitting here connecting to, wait a second, in a Sabbath context, Jesus is saying, my father is working. And now I'm working. The Sabbath isn't just a happenstance or a circumstance. It's not just a factoid. It has everything to do with what's taking place there. And Jesus, in this context, says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Man, just consider right off the bat, in the context where he's getting in trouble, the uh uh-ohs for doing it on the Sabbath, he's gleaning and he's healing the lame. My father is working till now, and now I'm working. I'm thinking to myself as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, is he saying also, is he thinking in his head, my Sabbath is coming. I'm working right now, though. But my Sabbath is coming where I'll be seated for the work will be finished. My Sabbath is coming, but there's work to do right now. I'm wondering if he's thinking all those things and just didn't say it. Now turn to John 9. Man, this is a great, 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 great story. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay, we've got people that are in need and people that are hungry. Got people that are lame and crusty and forgotten. Can you imagine how dirty that joker was? The lame guy, 38 years. All he does is lay by the pool of Bethesda every day. And here we have a blind guy. Blind since birth. His disciples asked him, said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it wasn't this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The first time I preached through this passage, near and dear to my heart, the works of God come into play right here because this healing takes place on the Sabbath. Watch what unfolds. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Man, what a beautiful picture. He spits on the very same ground that God created man from, and he does in many ways a recreative work. He spits on the ground, makes some mud, 
I mean, who, who does that? Puts it on his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he is healed. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as, as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, yep, sure is. It is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, no, I'm the guy. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, man, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Say it together with me. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Put it in your margin. Uh Uh-oh. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, well, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. See, that's a Sabbath argument. It's a Sabbath issue here where he's doing the works of God. Not his parents. His parents didn't sin. He didn't sin. He was born blind so that the works of God would be on display. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. I mean, he doesn't know who he is at that point. Fast forward to verse 35, just because I don't want to not read the rest of the story. We don't need it necessarily, but it's just too good to not read. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, a lot takes place in that chapter. It's really pretty funny. You need to read it. This blind guy has a great sense of humor. Jesus heard that they had sent him out or cast him out, and they they cast this guy out of the synagogue for for being healed. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and, and said, well, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who's speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see like you, blind dude, helpless and hopeless and lame, may see. And those who see, I put quotation marks around that because he's being uh, sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, he's, he's being... There's about five people trying to bail me out right now. Because he, he's, he's, they're mouthing the word. I can't, I can't read lips. <laughs> if five of you know what I'm talking about, that's enough. That those who, who do not see may see like you, lame guy, lame blind guy. And those who see may become blind like the Pharisees. Those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, as in I would have healed you. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What a wonderful, wonderful chapter. The first little argument had to do with gleaning. The second one that we're considering this morning had to do with healing the lame. And the third has to do with opening the eyes of the blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what I want you to see right here is just so great. Jesus is not perpetuating the Old Testament teaching on the Sabbath. 
He doesn't say, you have heard it said this, but I say this. He doesn't perpetuate the Old Testament Sabbath. And the reason he doesn't perpetuate the Old Testament Sabbath is because he became the Old Testament Sabbath. He fulfilled the Old Testament Sabbath. This adds whole new meaning to passages that are familiar to us. I read this passage last week in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will be your Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He's saying to them, I'll be your rest. You don't have to do this on a day of the week anymore because I'll be your rest. I'll work where you can't. I'll accomplish what you couldn't. Man, I'll work so you can walk. I'll do the work so you can eat when you're in need and hungry. I'll do the work so you can see. He fulfilled the Sabbath because he became our Sabbath. I couldn't help but think of what Noah was named and think, man, Noah, he was a pale shadow of what Christ is for us. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Christ is a new and better Noah. Amen. Man, Noah accomplished something pretty amazing on a big piece of wood, but Christ accomplished far more on another piece of wood. I'll accomplish what you couldn't. This is an ugly cry. I'm just doing an ugly I don't even care. I don't even care. I'll work so you can walk. I'll do the work so you can eat. And I'll work so you can see. Man, the Hebrews church needed to hear that. This church needs to hear that. Anyone who thinks that they can somehow work the works of salvation, man, they need to hear that. Man, you need to hear that. I started thinking about what's surrounding Hebrews 4. I started thinking of some of the images that the Hebrews preacher has left this church. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. 
I started thinking about these images. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and those for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Now the point in which we are saying is this. If you want the point, here's the point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Seated. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. It's not hanging out my nose. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Boom. Man, he's seated all over the place in this book. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that's set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated all over this book because he's seated in heaven right now because when he said it's finished on the cross, the work, the saving work was finished. He did what we couldn't. He worked where we couldn't. He accomplished what we couldn't. So now our Sabbath rest, our Sabbath rest at its best is to rest from your efforts to cover your own sin. Rest from those efforts. Rest from your efforts to cover your own sin and trust in his work completely. That's the good news. You want to share somebody? Hey, man, let me tell you about the good news. That's the good news. You can rest from your efforts to cover your sin because he dealt with it once and for all. And then he sat down. Man. I'm going to share one more passage with you. And then we're going to have a supper together. A few weeks ago, when I preached the first sermon on Sabbath, I thought Brad Cardwell was going to come out of his skin. Afterward, he was just giddy thinking about this passage. And it's a very appropriate passage to go to in light of what we're talking about. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4. I didn't realize I didn't tell you where it was. So let me tell you so you can turn there. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. 
If you want to try and work to cover up your sin, know that you're going to get what you do, you're due. And I have very bad news for you because according to the rest of this book, what you're due is not good. For the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages, if you want to get your wages according to your efforts, we fall far short on your best day. On your best day. Your wages, if you want to get what you're due, is death. And to the one who does not work, look, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, reckoned, credited as righteousness. You want to be in league with our father Abraham? You do what he did and you trust in God alone, not your own efforts, ever. You can't cover your own sin on your best day. You can't deal with the work that needs to be done. We are laying lame by the pool of Bethesda on our best day. We are blind and hopeless and helpless on our best day. We need to trust in the one who fulfilled this law. We need to trust in the one who accomplished what we couldn't. To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is from Psalm 32. This may have been written after he sinned in regards to murder and adultery with Uriah and Bathsheba. We don't know that it's written in response to that. But it's definitely a psalm of penitence. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And that teaching in Romans 4, you've got to connect to that imagery of the Sabbath where the worker on the Sabbath, he's working six days, but on the Sabbath, he's sitting under a tree drinking lemonade. You've got to take in the imagery of the oxen, yokes, Strap two of them together. They're out there working six days a week. They're working six years out of seven. Mm, this sweat coming off the big old, big old haunches and shoulders. But on the Sabbath, you see them out in a the field chewing their cud, eating tacos. All kind of metaphor getting connected there. <laughs> Man, they're enjoying, enjoying their Sabbath. We've got to know when it comes to saving sort of works, when it comes to works dealing with covering our sin, man, we're sitting out there chewing our cud. Yep. Eating tacos. Drinking lemonade. Now do you see why the punishment for working on the Sabbath was so grave? Because knowing then what Sabbath would become, knowing then that it wouldn't be about a day, would be a mindset and a heart set about resting in Christ, you see what the consequences now are when you're out picking up kindling wood on the Sabbath and why it's death and why that's completely appropriate? Because when you are trusting in your efforts, when you need to be resting in Christ, the outcome there is death. For those who trust in their works, the outcome is death. He gave us 15 years worth of image, 1,500 years worth of image. 
to help us understand what's, what is our outcome if we trust in our own efforts when it comes to salvation. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking word from the Pope this week. If you keep up with the news, you know what the Pope said this week, shared this information, that this thought, that uh, teaching, I don't know what, homily or something, I guess you'd call it. I don't know what, I do know what passage he's reading from, and I can't remember what it is. It, you can look it up. But what he taught was that a, an, an atheist who does good works will be in heaven with those who trust in God and do good works. I don't know what Bible someone is reading to land in that spot. I'm not anti-Pope, but I'm anti that message all day long because that's not good news. Because this guy doing good works is going to get his due, and our due is not good. This guy doing good works, apart from faith, it's sin on your best day, and it's not, it doesn't measure up. The wages of sin is death. I don't want those wages. And the wages for the atheist would be the wages just as somebody who thinks they're following Christ, but they're trusting in their own efforts and good works. That's anathema, if you looked up that word from last week. It's anathema. We are to rest when it comes to saving work. We are to rest in Christ. The Hebrews 4 message, man, get it. Last week, continue in the responding work. This week, but cease and desist forevermore in the earning work because there's no such thing. You can't earn it. When he said it's finished, he meant it. It was finished. So Christ is our Sabbath rest, period. That's why it's no longer about a day of the week for us. It's every day. It's everywhere we go. Everything we do, while we work, we rest. And while it's called today, we trust. Let me pray, and then we'll have our supper. Lord, before we rest in a meal in these next few minutes, I'm so thankful for this overwhelming good news. Lord, I pray for any person in this room or any person that hears this recorded message or sees it online that has any inkling that there are any good works that we can do to earn salvation or even contribute to or participate in salvation, that you will use these, these messages the, or these passages we've considered today to open the eyes of darkness and hopelessness. Lord, I pray you will use this frail, feeble exposition to do a great and mighty work so that this church and those who are here today visiting family or just visiting for the first time will be fueled by faith and trust in Christ alone, that it will be credited to us, it will be counted to us, it will be reckoned to us righteousness as we trust completely and absolutely in Christ.
Lord, I pray these next few minutes that we spend eating a good meal together that you've provided and earned. It'll be fueled with satisfaction and trust in Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I thought it appropriate to share a story I've shared before during the Lord's Supper, but it just seems very appropriate. Giving, given the guy lame 38 years, given a man born blind, given a bunch of disciples who are hungry and in need, and how God, through Christ, God the Son, does what he does, accomplishing what we couldn't, working so that we can walk, working so that we can eat, working so that we can see. I'll take you to a story in 1 Samuel. You can listen, you can turn if you're a visual sort of person. 1 Samuel 9. And David said, David is king by this point. He said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, let me just tell you right now, that's sort of counter to the program. Whenever a, a man becomes king, if he's becoming king of kind of a new lineage, if he's starting a new lineage, he would kill off the old monarchy. So there would never be any potential threat against the throne. But here he's asking, is there anybody left from Saul's family that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, it's counter the likely. And it's really pretty interesting right off the bat if you just consider that that's not the way things are supposed to work. So what's in store here? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? David is putting on God's nature right here. He's displaying the kind of God that we have. Displaying the gospel in this story. Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And the king sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. You know what Mephibosheth, he's so hard to say. Ever since Karen Bench said that on a video years ago, I can hardly say it. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You know what he's thinking. I'm done. <laughs> I've hit out at Lodabar long enough, and then here David has found me out. So I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb over here at dinner. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Not only am I going to spare you, but I'm going to invite you to my table. He raised us together with Christ, and he seated us in heavenly places. The shock of the gospel right here on display. Mephibosheth, not only am I going to spare you, but I'm going to invite you to my table. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Mephibosheth is just honest. Which, man, that's the heart of real worship right there. When you're really honest about who you are apart from Christ. When you're really honest, I am a dead dog apart from Christ. I have no righteousness of my own, maybe more so than the guy next to me, but not relative a holy God. That's the, that's the contrast. That's the measurement. We're all a bunch of Mephibosheths, a bunch of dead dogs. That will fuel some sweet worship, wouldn't you, just when you connect to that? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his house I've given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, said, or shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That's how we're eating at the Lord's table in these next few minutes. Like one of his very own. The scandal of it. Just take it in. The scandal of it. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet, in case you forgot. He reminds us. Now, by the way, he's lame in both of his feet. The thing I want you to see here is a beautiful picture of the character of God and the love of God on display and what David did with Mephibosheth. But what God does for us in Christ is even better. For he doesn't carry us lame to the table. He says, pick up your mat and walk. He says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He gives us sight. He doesn't just lead us blind to the table. What a shocking, shocking story. We're walking in. And that fuels good worship. I encourage you as we take the supper here in the next few minutes, take it with me as a Mephibosheth. Take it with me as a guy that's been lame your whole lives before you met Christ. Take it with me with somebody who's blind their whole lives before you met Christ. Take it with me as somebody who is in need and hungry apart from Christ. And you'll find real satisfaction here at this table. Let's distribute the elements. I used to want to go hide at home after I had one of the ugly cries like that, but I've gotten actually kind of acquainted with doing that. And Mephibosheth wasn't cool. I mean, he wasn't. And there's nobody cool here, really, if you get to know us. You know, or if you already know us, you know, yeah, you're right. There are a bunch of Mephibosheths. Good news is not us, it's our God. And parents, you can be okay with that in regards to your kids. You don't want your kids to be impressed with you. You want your kids to be impressed with your God. Small group shepherds, you don't want your small groups to be impressed with you. You want to be impressed with your God. He's far more impressive, far more consistent, far more worthy of pride, boasting, So let's make much of him together and enjoy him together. As we consider what this represents, I can't see y'all faking you out. I don't want to do that. Um, let's, Let's consider together what this represents. A completely finished work 
as we take this, enjoy our Sabbath that we have, we can experience today, right now, resting in Christ's finished work. Let's hear him together say, it is finished, and let's take and eat. Let's take and drink. So next Sunday night, we have planned a little ice cream get-together, and um, I encourage y'all, you get ice cream maker for cheap. You can get Walmart, I think. We got ours on Amazon. It's like 25 bucks, and you can throw down some homemade ice cream just like that. I mean, it's not hard to do. So you can look up some recipes and stuff online, or, but that'd be fun for us to, to do that next Sunday night. But as fun as that is, let me tell you what's really in store, in store next Sunday night. I mean, ice cream's important. But we're going to have fried fish next Sunday night, and let me tell you why. Let me read a passage to you, and I'll put it in perspective. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Listen to this. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays, lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Those of you who have walked with Crosspoint for a period of time, if you're members, you know that this is something that we practice as a church. We actually practice something called church discipline. It's not an angry, ugly, pursuing people sort of thing. It's a, if there's somebody in our family, in our church family, and I'm included in this, that gets to a point where we say, I'm not going to be accountable to you in this, and I'm going to continue in my sin, and I'm not going to listen to you anymore that that person is not part of the church after a period of time. We walk through a process with that person or that family to give them the situation that often takes place over months, in some cases years, appealing, um, encouraging, begging, um, imploring them to repent and turn from their sin. And if someone does not, then we get to the point. It's not the, not the last step of church discipline, but the next to last step of church discipline is where they are removed from the church. The world hears something like that and says, this is exactly what I expect from the church. It's not like that. It's a heartbreaking thing, but it's hopeful at the same time because it's hopeful because what happens at the last step that happens in the life of our church in 10 years has happened coming up on three different times out of, I think, five cases of church discipline. That's pretty good odds where God used that step where that person felt the sting and the pain of isolation from the people of God and God used that to bring them to a place of repentance, repentance that our words couldn't. And Sunday night, we're going to be celebrating the restoration of Brandon Brand, a brother right there. I've watched him week after week as we, as we passed out the Lord's Supper where it goes right by him because he can't take it yet. We walked through a process of 
searching the scriptures with him, searching the Lord. The Lord is at time and searching his heart and he inviting us in, search me. And we're going to have a time of celebrating. If the angels can celebrate, you better bet we can celebrate. And I'll explain to you next Sunday night why we're having fried fish. It will seem oh so appropriate. Some of you know why, but some of you don't. And if you're not a member, that's okay. This is for those who have been visiting with us as well. This is not a members only type of event. In fact, we don't want to hide the lamp under the bushel. We want you to see what God can do through something that is really hard, but good. So y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. And we'll worship next Sunday morning. And then next Sunday night, we'll have, I know homemade ice cream and fish may not sound good together, but it's going to be good. I'm just, I'm just convinced of it. So um, you can eat one or the other or something if you have an aversion to both of them together. Let's pray. God, what a sweet morning. What sweet, sweet, sweet news we have to uh, enjoy, that we have to rest in. It compels us to work, Lord, in a way that I pray that is never mindfully, intentionally trying to contribute to our salvation, but will always be in response. Lord, I'm so thankful that the work was finished. I'm so thankful that there's not any possibility of any sort of lingering bad news out there when it comes to our salvation, that if we walk in Christ, that we bear his righteousness as he bore our sin. We trust you with Abraham. We trust you alongside him and are thankful. We look forward to next Sunday. I look forward to a brother, a coin, and a sheep coming home and a celebration and a Lord's Supper heartily enjoyed. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.